There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Climactic. My name is Mark Spencer, and I'm proud to be the founder and publisher of the Climactic Collective. And today, I'm happy to tell you I'm bringing you a piece from what has to be one of my new favorite podcasters. Kyla Brettel has been a radio producer and audio creator for quite a bit longer than I've been in audio, or lived in Australia for that matter. After working at ABC Radio National as a producer and engineer, she later became a lecturer and a researcher with the media program at RMIT University. After that, she made a bit of a tree change and moved out to regional Victoria. But what started as a lifestyle decision to live a little slower and closer to the earth, to spend more time with her kids and write that fantasy book she's always wanted to write. But in her own words, it was the climate crisis that snapped her out of that dream rural life. Kyla, along with collaborator Rob Law, are now making Endgame at endgamepodcast.net. They're peering into the dark and making sound works about grappling with the climate emergency. They're collecting audio in and around Mount Alexandershire, following people, events, and ideas that express something about how we're coming to grips with the climate crisis and what we're doing as a community to prepare for whatever's next. It's their local take on the universal struggle with change and the challenge of working together in the face of existential dread, trying to understand ourselves and seek hands with one another as we fumble forward amidst a changing climate, there's no going back now. End quote. So I invite you to join me in binging Endgame podcast. It's honestly a revelation. And I only learned about this after reaching out to Kyla from seeing her post in one of the many, too many, Facebook groups I'm part of. She'd just written a review of Rebecca Huntley's How to Talk About Climate Change. And when I read her review, it really jumped off the page and I could hear it in my head like she was reading it to me. So I reached out to Kyla and asked if she'd like to do just that, to read her review to share with you. And she said yes. And at that stage, little did I know that Kyla had all the sound gear and experience to make this review really sing. So thank you, Kyla, for entrusting me with those recordings. I hope I've done a decent job producing them up for you. And I'll leave you in Kyla's very capable hands now. Find a link to her blog and the Endgame podcast project in the show notes to this episode. And if you're ever doing any writing yourself or know anyone who is, that would make a great adaptation to audio. Just get them to reach out and get in touch with us at hello at climactic.fm. And when Kyla's finished reading her review, don't go anywhere, because I've got something very special for you. Kyla and her collaborator Rob Law have kindly agreed to let us run one of the episodes of Endgame for you right here on the Climactic feed. Now, for many of you, this is going to be the first time you've heard the Endgame project, and I'm so excited I get to be your gateway. 
So stick around. Enjoy. Hello, Mark. It's Kyla. Thank you for having me on the show. So today I have the first cab off the rank on my summer reading list for you. I've just put down Rebecca Huntley's latest book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. I'm happy to say the book delivers what it promises. It provides a great set of principles for thinking about how we talk about climate change, not just to one another, but also to ourselves. So Huntley's a respected Australian social researcher. Her book draws on focus group studies and research projects of her own and others, and it's grounded in the seminal work of Per Epson Stokneys and George Marshall in climate change communications. It's easy to read and rollicks along, weaving in Huntley's wry personal voice and more detailed portraits of some of the people she interviews. In the book, Huntley opens up the can of worms that is the human brain on climate change to explore some of the impediments that make it difficult for us to move forward. With a smile in her voice, she shows us a number of drivers and brakes wriggling and writhing in her palm. One of my favourites is the idea of cognitive dissonance. This is the pain we experience when our behaviour and our beliefs don't match up. As we struggle to bring our actions and ideas into alignment and alleviate our uncomfortable feelings of hypocrisy in relation to climate change, it's tempting to either underestimate the seriousness and immediacy of the threat or overestimate our personal response to it, arguing to ourselves that we're doing our bit and it's not really my responsibility anyway. Other aspects of human nature that impede us from being actively engaged in climate change is the idea of confirmation bias, that we tend to focus on ideas and theories that support our worldview and keep us in our comfort zone. And also that we like to extrapolate a lot based on very little and usually overestimate our chances of getting the things we want. We also lean towards thinking of the future through a short-term lens and only wake up momentarily to climate change when it slaps us in the face. Apparently, concerns about climate change in summer swell and recede in the cooler months, when the weather is mild and animals stop dropping dead from the sky. We each travel our own road, dealing with our demons, in order to make the uncomfortable, emotional connection with this mother of all threats, that we must do something appropriately dramatic in response to climate change, as individuals, communities, societies, and as a global population. Huntley looks at emotions as pathways to this deeper understanding of our problem. She examines a range of powerful ways through which we connect to climate change, and her chapters are titled, appropriately, Guilt, Fear, Anger, Denial, Despair, I got lost in despair for a while, Hope, Loss, and Love. Each of these emotions has their push and pull and no one way of communicating climate change will work for everyone. I really like this book. I found it useful as a documentary maker and it's helped me with my work on endgamepodcast.net. This is my radiophonic podcast. And it also resonates with me as a concerned resident of the planet. And admittedly, I've got some confirmation bias going on as she references a number of my favourite thinkers um, and researchers on both human nature and climate change, so including Dan Siegel, Daniel Kahneman, 
Jem Bendel and Rebecca Solnit. And I also got good community and collegial feels to see two of my locals from my little shy I mentioned. That's Rob Law um, for an article he wrote for The Guardian on climate grief. And also Cassia Reid and her wonderful Climate Flags project. You should Google it, it's great. Without wading into the brackish waters of self-help, Huntley manages to offer response strategies, if not solutions, to grappling with climate, to ourselves and with others. The Easter egg wrappers glinting in the grass for me were the importance of listening to others, as opposed to projecting onto them and hearing an individual's heart song, if you like, and seeking connections rather than differences. Also, this idea of active hope or sceptical activism, not shying away from the dire seriousness of our situation, but pushing forward with a positive response anyway. And finally, the importance of objects of care, of connecting people to climate via the things they love most, like a pebble in a pond triggering concentric circles of care and concern, hopefully to embrace the planet and the other life forms with whom we share it. Thank you. My name is Kyla Brettle. You can find out more about me at blog.kylabrettle.net or go to my radiophonic podcast I co-produce with Rob Law, which is endgamepodcast.net. Thank you, and I hope to speak to you soon. Bye. And now, for you in its entirety, is the episode or radiophonic or audio story, I'm not quite sure what to call it, from the Endgame podcast project called Problem Solved. This is all about the declaration of a climate emergency by Mount Alexandria Shire Council, but it's not so much about what happens in the room at the council meeting that night, but the lead-up and the aftermath. We've had episodes on Climactic before about other councils declaring climate emergencies, but but this is easily the most poignant. It spends the most time, even in only 21 minutes, with the emotions of what it means for your council to declare a climate emergency, what it feels like afterwards, and coming to the realization that a climate emergency declaration by a council in and of itself is not enough, that it is a symbolic action and has to be paired with follow-up, but that it can also be a huge source of relief for the community. So you'll find in the extra long show notes for this episode, links to some resources to get your council to declare a climate emergency, and find those other episodes on the Climactic Collective. But for now, if you can, go somewhere where you can close your eyes and you can experience the story of the Mount Alexandria Shire Climate Emergency Declaration, and why, for the climate-engaged residents at the time, this may have felt like it was problem-solved. Endgame is about our struggle to come to terms with climate change and prepare ourselves for what's coming next. Not globally, but locally, where we live, in and around Castlemaine, the big town in the small shire of Mount Alexander in Victoria, Australia. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Here on lands referred to as the central goldfields, known for 
considerably longer as Jajawarong country. We need to start acting now, both to prevent the worst effects of climate change and to be ready for the impacts we know are coming, no matter what we do. Climate change threatens our very existence, our lives, our futures, our future children's lives and the lives of countless other species of the planet. It's a very strange time to be alive, overwhelming in its enormity and in the precarious and delicate dance of hope, action, despair, courage and vulnerability that we are required to enact on a daily basis. It's tempting to do what is easy. But if there's anything my education has taught me, it's that if I choose what is easy now, it will be so much harder in the long term. So, declare a climate emergency. How, how are we balanced, Rob? Sorry, go again. Are we balanced? Are we? How's Jody? Um, right, let me just get it angled right. How's how's that for um, volume? Thank you yeah. for joining us. Um, my name's Kyla Brettel, and I'm talking to you from a COVID-induced bubble here with Rob Law and Jody Newcomb. So today we thought we'd draw a line in the sand and say our story starts here. About seven months ago, our local council met for the second time to discuss whether or not to declare a climate emergency. Thank you, Mayor Henderson. I move that Mount Alexander Shire acknowledge that urgent and continuing action is needed to address the current and future impacts of climate change on the health, economy and well-being of the people of Mount Alexander Shire and its environment. I remember I was sitting out on the pew at the front porch and I think I ended up just walking back and forth down the driveway just anxiously trying to hear in my headphones what was happening. But all parts of our community and moving council will need to act over many years to reduce emissions to adapt to our changing environment and to manage the predicted increased number and intensities of emergencies and that there is significant expertise and goodwill within our communities and I was watching it from my phone as well, uh, walking down my street with my friend Melanie, trying to get the volume up high enough to follow what was going on. And that Mount Alexander Shire Council will act on the urgency by declaring a climate emergency, approving and implementing a roadmap that will lead to zero net emissions for council operations by 2025 ensuring that all actions are informed by... And that kind of you know, ominous feeling of climate change here and now, given it was you know, the beginning of, of the black summer that we just had and waiting and waiting for this declaration. As Australia burns and millions of people choke, many accuse the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, of burying his head in the sand when it comes to climate change action. The government insists it is taking real action on climate change. Uh, he's already denied any links between global warming and this unprecedented crisis. Untold human suffering if climate change is not addressed. What do you mean by that? Greyish yellow tinged the sky. We can't see the sun and in some ways it feel, feels like it's the end of the world. So 
So you guys have both got day jobs in the climate change and sustainability sector in our town, you're like insiders. So was this meeting like a done deal? Was everyone expecting the climate emergency to be called or was it genuinely up in the air? I think we'd learnt not to um, expect the expected with this uh, group of councillors. We'd, we'd been surprised at the, the last meeting at how it had turned out. I don't think any of us were um, were getting our hopes up too high. If it wasn't, then that's my mistake. Okay, I will probably, I'd like to hear the debate, but it's all indicated at this stage, but I don't support the entire motion, so we'll have a debate. Thank you, Councillor Patricia. Any other opposition? For me, I've been, you know, I've been charting different councils' declarations in, in my role with the Victorian Greenhouse Alliances, where we work with councils on climate change. So I've been kind of tracking all these different councils' declarations over the last few years. And, you know, I've seen a lot of other councils say they're not going to pass the declaration, they don't agree with the language, but they will adopt, you know, these strong targets as well. And and I really have no idea which way I would go. Yeah, they're, they're basically, um, I would rather this be what put forward until we get more information and more professional advice. I, I think we are jumping too early. We don't know what will happen. Uh, and I'm not prepared to put my name to something that may have horrible consequences from a financial and legal point of view for council, even though I totally understand the views of all the people. I think that for local government, there's certain connotations around what the word emergency means. So I think that was one of the sticking points was the framing. And, you know, in November last year, an emergency was something that was quite discreet and short term. This is all before you know, our extended Black Summer emergency and our extended COVID emergency. That's, I think we all have a much better sense of what it feels like to live in an emergency now that we've, you know, we've been going through COVID and it's a high state of alert and anxiety all the time, which is not healthy. And yeah, it's a very interesting insight as to what that framing means. And now we're not in a state of emergency, we're actually in a state of disaster. Um, but these, this idea that climate change is this long, you know, it's a chronic kind of long-term emergency um, that sort of underpins all the other emergencies and aggravates things like bushfires and floods. So I think getting the heads around how that sat in the local government context was a struggle. I think, like, I had some problems with the idea of emergency. It's one of the fears of this kind of language of of, of dampening down and hyping us up at the same time. And in that state, anything can get passed. That's right. In fact, the climate movement often uses wartime footing as an example of how we can actually overcome something really difficult. That's the attitude. That's a way of thinking about the world that's really got us into so much of this trouble in the first place. And and if if we haven't managed to solve the problems um, that we're in through a command and control approach, then we need to maybe explore a different way. And one of the members of our community actually posted this onto the wall at the town hall during the forum and said, it's not an emergency, it's an emergence. See? That it comes from the Latin emergere, to meaning to arise and to bring to light, to rise up and out. That in the 14th century, the word emergent referred to rising from what surrounds it, coming into view that this is the etymology of emergency, an unforeseen combination of circumstances or the resulting state that calls for immediate action. So for me, I suppose um, what it comes down to in this particular motion is that 
as a council, we can um, show leadership. Um, we can put it out there to our community that this is a serious issue and we need to be much more serious when we talk about things like fire, water, um, and how we adapt. And we need to plan and adapt with our um, community um, who are already doing lots of great things. Um, but I suppose the thing that it comes down to me personally is I have to look at my 16-year-old child in the eye and I would have to tell him why I didn't vote for him. And there is no reason why I could do that. Um, we need to support our children in this because we'll all be dead soon. It's not our future, I'm sorry. And I'm younger. It's not our future at all. Why were we why were we all hoping for it so much? Like what did it what did it really mean and represent? From from my perspective as the climate change coordinator at council, um, that there might be a bit more commitment to actually funding. Um, the other aspect, I suppose, is that I felt very passionately that the answer to how we were going to address the climate emergency lay with um, local action and local government is such an important part of that. One of the one of the things that's worth highlighting here is that councils don't actually have the ability to declare an emergency. That's only a state government, a federal government um, right to do that. And so it's a purely symbolic uh, gesture in some ways, but one that's about advocacy, I suppose. I think, you know, part of that intense investment in needing the declaration to happen is probably uh, because of the situation in Australia for so many years where we just feel like we can't talk about it, can't talk about it honestly. And particularly in this shire, there was this real sense of needing to have it acknowledged by a local government authority to give everyone this sort of strange sense of relief and comfort that finally we have, you know, some leaders, albeit at the local level, that are you know, being honest about what we're facing. I was feeling deeply depressed about what was going on at a federal level and I needed my, where I was going to invest my life and my kids and my home and my garden, you know, I, I needed that space not just to be a desolate wasteland. So I think the declaration became, you know, that, that point in time where we all had the chance to uh, collectively acknowledge and then we'll work out what comes next later. It's quite therapeutic in a way to be able to talk about it honestly at that level. We see climate change as an existential threat. We're children, we're 15. We can't vote or run a major business or buy solar panels and electric cars. If the window of opportunity to do something to prevent these terrifying feedback loops and tipping is closing, we're hardly going to be old enough to do anything major about it ourselves before the window is closed. It's the adults that have to do something urgently. People around Australia now know about the awesome kids from Castlemaine. Now we need to show them that the adults in Castlemaine are just as awesome and that we've made climate change the number one priority by declaring a climate emergency. In the end, it was passed 5-1, um, I believe. 6-1. 6-1, OK. For the record, we should have a play of that speech and take that moment to go, well, this happened here. 
So it's not as though we can say, yep, this, we know what it's going to happen in the next 30 years. We don't. We have an indication. It's going to be hotter. There's going to be more emergency days. There's going to be less rain. So we know some things are likely. We have to prepare for it. And really, for our children, school strikers who have asked that we declare a climate emergency, kids, this is for you. Thank you, councillors. I think I've heard from all councillors who wish to speak, so I'm now putting the motion. Those in favour of the motion? But it is funny, isn't it, that um, celebration, that celebratory aspect, and we, Jody and I shared text messages when the declaration had passed, and, and that was all about that. Like we were, I said, great night, kind of a sign of how topsy-turvy the world is, that there is jubilation about <laughs> declaring an emergency. And Jody said, I know, I was reflecting on this. It's like, yay, the end of humanity, let's celebrate beer, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was this real sense of, oh, we've done it, we've declared it and problem solved in a way. Or just <laughs> if for, only. <laughs> for that day, yeah. Rob, what did you do after the declaration of a climate emergency? I got my teary and went around to my wife and just looked at me and knew that it must have meant that it passed. Yeah, that moment was pretty powerful. And then, and then I kind of relaxed a lot of it after that, to be honest. It sort of like um, didn't really stop in kind of the work and doing stuff in action, but it just, just created this sort of nice sense of peace after that moment. just standing down at the creek at the back of my house, Campbell's Creek. My kids were two and five at the moment. They come down here every day and throw sticks in the creek and chase each other up mounds of dirt and climb over tree trunks. And I'm always often wondering what, what's this going to be like in 20, 30 years. This time of year, in mid-August, the silver wattles are in full bloom. I mean, an amazing gold, especially at this time of night, at dusk, on an overcast and cloudy day. And then higher up in the canopy, there's a, there's a magpie directly over my head at the moment. And a couple of crimson rosellas. Some silver eyes, saw some fantails and some willy wagtails before. This 30 or 40 years ago just wasn't here, it was just a completely denuded landscape since the gold rush in the 1850s where every tree in sight was ripped up and it was all of the ground was unearthed. Except being down here right now, you'd never know that because it's, it's incredibly diverse. 
this has come about through a few committed local people that have spent you know the last two decades revegetating this creek and now there's stands of yellow gums and yellow boxes with the silver and black wattles and then more and more understory gradually appearing and occasionally i don't think it'll be tonight but occasionally i see a platypus down here in this creek as well as a long-necked turtle And in a way, it's, you know, it's kind of one, one aspect of it is quite futile because we know that climate change is just going to impact this landscape too. And, and there'll be things that don't survive and things that will thrive. The yellow gum, for example, apparently is likely to be quite tolerant to a lot of the climate conditions that we're going to face in the next 20 to 30 years. Something's just come out of the water. I don't know, and it's gone back under again. And I don't know whether it was a platypus or a turtle. It's a bit hard to see from where I am, but one of the things I love about being down here is that it's it reminds me about what we're capable of, what we're capable of when we come together and put our minds to it to repair landscapes and to do gestures of environmental good or do things for for where we live and our place of, and how we can heal and regenerate and being here in the goldfields it's a healing landscape so I often wonder how that's you know, affecting how we see environmental problems like climate change you know, we've seen what's in our power to to restore and regenerate and perhaps in that sense there may be a greater sense of confidence or a, or a greater sense of agency and of course it might be all futile like of course it's it's futile for a community to think that it can just you know do its do its bit locally and everything will be fine but I don't think I think that's there's there's a deeper reasoning behind the need to do that. I can see some ripples across the creek and I'm wondering if it's the platypus. It's moving across. Yes, it is the platypus. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I've never seen it in this spot before. It's usually further down the bridge, and especially given that I'm here talking. That's great.
Thank you for listening to this sound work. Co-produced for the Endgame Story site by myself, Kyla Brettel and Rob Law. To find out more about this show, the project, or to listen to more, go to our website, endgamepodcast.net. The Climactic Collective. The Climactic Collective. Collective.